like the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, beginning today at verse uh, 22. Last week, we began to look at this passage of Paul in the letter to the Galatians, talking about the fruit of the Spirit and his uh, instruction, if you walk by the Spirit, or in the Spirit's power, you will not carry out the deeds or the works of the flesh. And he listed those for us immediately preceding these two verses, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. He listed the deeds of the flesh, the kind of thing that kind of naturally comes out of human beings apart from Jesus Christ. To one extent or another, those things are seen in the heart of every person. But Paul says if we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, a different kind of thing will come out of us. And some of the things that I want to point out as as we get started here is, first of all, we're told that these, and there are nine of qualities listed, there are nine qualities listed in three groups of three. That's how they logically kind of divide up. We're told that this is the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, these qualities come from the Holy Spirit. They are not human in their origin. And to contrast it with the deeds of the flesh, he calls the product of the natural man, the works of the flesh, or the deeds of the flesh. Those are the kinds of things that we produce in our behavior. Strife and jealousy and anger and outbursts and all those kinds of things that he lists. But he calls the fruit of the Spirit not works, but fruit. Now, if you think about the nature of fruit on a tree or fruit in a vine, it's something that arises naturally from the character of the plant. A healthy apple tree in the early fall of the year has apples on it. If it's healthy and it's growing normally, out of its essence come apples. An orange tree is the same way. A grapevine is the same way. The fruit of the tree comes naturally from within it. The tree does not have to labor to produce that. All it has to do is just grow. It just is there. It does its thing. It grows. And the fruit develops on it out of the essence of its life and its nature. The thing that Paul wants us to understand is that these qualities of Godlike character naturally develop in those in whom the Holy Spirit is living and in control. When we are yielded to the Spirit of God and He is living through our lives, what comes out of us is of His essence. It's natural. It's not something we have to labor to produce. 
It's not something we have to work at. Jesus said, abide in me and you will bear fruit. Just rest in me, just abide. Like that great cluster hangs on the vine. It's just there. Rest in me, and out of your life will come these qualities. Paul wants to make that distinction for us. And that's very encouraging, I hope. Because it lets us know that it is possible for this character to be developed in our lives if we simply remain connected to Jesus Christ by faith. He will produce it in us. It's His work. The second thing that stands out about it is, I mentioned to you there are three groups of three, and if you look at the the spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Three sets of three, nine qualities, and yet Paul doesn't say they are the fruits of the Spirit. He says they are the fruit of the Spirit. Nine qualities, singular fruit. What's the point here? Well, again, if you look at any fruit, it has a variety of qualities. If you take an apple and pull it off the tree, I was teasing Rita a little bit this morning that she's, she's an artist and she could paint one that looks so real you'd almost want to eat it. And if you take the apple and set it on the table and, and study the apple, the apple has a variety of qualities. First of all, its color is probably not perfectly the same all over. It probably has hues and variations in the apple. It has dimples in the top. It has a stem. It may have little dots on it. And if you cut the thing in half and open it up and look at it, it has a white, sweet, meaty pulp to the uh, inside, and then it has an area where the seeds are. This apple has a variety of qualities. The outer peel tastes differently than the inner peel and uh, than the inner uh, pulp. And if you look at it, it has a lot of qualities, but it's only a single fruit. And Paul is letting us know in these verses that the Holy Spirit produces in us a fruit. A fruit that reflects the character of Jesus Christ, but it has a variety of qualities. Why is that important? Because some people want to look at this and pick and choose. They say, well, I'm kind of into joy joy and peace, you know, but I'm not very patient or kind. And, you know, that my strength lies in this other area. Not if you're filled with the Spirit. Sometimes people mistake spiritual fruit for their own temperament and personality. Some people are naturally more kind and soft-spoken than others, and they assume that that's gentleness and kindness. Some people are naturally more buoyant and and happy than others, and they, they say, oh, I have joy. Some people are more patient than others. Uh, but they lack other qualities. And I think that what we're seeing when we see singular instances is we're seeing our natural temperament, which, by the way, is defective at some point. (laughs) We're seeing our natural temperament rise to the surface 
but we're lacking other areas because Jesus really is not in control of our lives. Paul is letting us know that when we are under the control of the Holy Spirit, when we are filled with the Spirit and under His dominion, do not be drunk with wine, don't be under the influence of alcohol, but in, in a similar way, do be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Be intoxicated with Jesus. And if you are, all nine of these qualities will be evident. Because it's His character, it's the essence of who He is. And we need to hold that in our grasp and in our minds, because if we look into our lives with the searchlight of the Spirit of God, and we see that we are lacking in some areas, it means that we are not under the control of the Holy Spirit in totality. Because when He is reigning in our lives, these qualities are evident in our lives. All nine of them. And as we grow in Jesus Christ, I I think we gain a greater understanding and depth of all that it means, but they are all there to the person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. So in these next three weeks, we're going to look at these three sets of three, and we're going to delve into them in some depth. And as we consider them, one of the things that I want you to think about is, Do I see the evidence in my life of being filled with the Spirit? Or is something missing? And if something is missing, then He does not have full sway in your life. And you cannot say, I am filled with the Spirit. To be filled is to be topped off and running over. You know, and if you're not topped off, then you're not filled. You're you're empty. You're partially empty. Something's missing. And we need to come back to him and say, Lord, I really want to live under your control. Paul starts logically with, with the statement that the filling of the Holy Spirit produces in our lives love. And he starts there because it's dominant in the theme of relationships described throughout the New Testament. Now, those of you that have been around a while, you've heard me talk about the different Greek words for love. You know, we have only one word for love, and it applies to everything. We love our cars, we love ice cream, we love our wives, our husbands, we say it all in the same breath. And hopefully, hopefully there is a difference in meaning and quality to all of those applications. Well, the Greeks were not hindered by only having one word for love. They had four words for love, and they could use those words to specifically describe what kind of love they were talking about. They had phileo, which is the the familial or the brotherly comrade kind of love that good friends or family have for one another when you just enjoy being together, you know? You have good fellowship, you have a good time together, you like each other. There's that warmth of friendship, and and you have what the Greeks called phileo. They also had a word eros. Eros is not confined to sexual expression only, but eros referred to anything that satisfied the flesh in some kind of pleasurable way. When I say the flesh here, I'm not speaking of something evil like the carnal nature. I'm just talking about the body. 
food can can have uh, pleasure to it. Your new car can give you pleasure and satisfaction, um, and as well as can sexual expression. And so those were called an erotic kind of love. We've kind of confined that term to sexuality, but it didn't mean that to the Greeks. It meant anything that kind of satisfied the the senses of man. And then they had a word, storge, which was used to describe the kind of love that that animals and humans naturally have for their offspring. Uh, You know, I've seen birds, mother birds, risk their lives to take attention away from their babies uh, because they protect them naturally. Now, most animals will not fly into the jaws of death, but if it's to protect their young, they will. And the Greeks kind of recognized that and said, there's something going on here, and we're going to call that storge. But they had a word that described a quality of love that they saw so seldom, this term was never used in classical Greek literature. Josephus, who wrote a great history of the times and the Jews, never used this word. The Greeks had a word for a kind of unselfish, totally committed love that would sacrifice whatever it took for the, for the one loved. That term was agape, and they never used it in their classical literature because they couldn't find examples of it among human beings. They had the concept, but they didn't have the reality in front of their face. Nonetheless, This word agape is the word that is used most frequently for love in the New Testament. In fact, it occurs about 483 times in approximately 432 verses in 52 different forms throughout the New Testament. It is by far and away the most prolifically used word in the scriptures to define love. And it's because this agape love is the kind of love that was really not seen until God demonstrated it in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5 when he says, hardly anybody will give their lives for a righteous man. That's somebody that's a stickler for the rules. They always dot the I and cross the T, but don't expect them to go out of their way for you. Paul says, hardly anybody's going to die for a guy like that. If a person is good, that means they kind of go out of their way for you. They want to help you. If a person is good, Paul says, maybe somebody would die for somebody like that. Maybe. But then he says, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were ugly when we were rebellious, when we were self-centered, when we were offensive to God, Jesus Christ died for us. And Paul says, this is the kind of love that God produces in your life when He's in charge. It's a love that considers the value of another person or the praiseworthiness of God so much so that it overcomes even our own needs and our own desire for self-preservation. It's the kind of love that says, I will do for you what you need 
no matter what it cost me. And where does that come from, friends? Where does this kind of esteem of human life come from? This has pays no attention to race or background or religion or nationality or language. This pays no attention to whether a person is nice or wretched. This kind of love says, I cherish and value human life because God made human beings in His own image and I love them just as I find them. I value their life. This is why, friends, believers, true believers who are full of the Spirit of God hate abortion. Because it does not matter how fertilization occurs. It could be through a crime. It could be through immorality. It doesn't matter how it occurs. We look at that person that is now developing and we value that life. We hold that life precious before God. This is why Christians who understand the value of human life are opposed to euthanasia. Because we value life. We know that no matter how difficult life becomes, no matter how painful life becomes, it still has infinite value in the sight of God. It's precious. And it doesn't matter if a person is crying out in agony and begging for something that will put them out of their misery. We recognize that as long as they're still breathing... There's hope for them in Jesus Christ. And what lies beyond their last breath is not better if they don't know Him. And to hold that life and cherish it is incredibly valuable. And for those who know Him, friends, I don't have a right to control my destiny. My life is precious to God and, and my days and times are in His hands. We cherish life. We value it as, as followers of Jesus Christ. We love people. It doesn't matter how they act. It doesn't matter what they do. Uh, and, you know, when I talk about this, I want to be sure that we understand it doesn't mean people don't get under your skin. It doesn't mean there are unsavory characters in the world. It doesn't mean that people are sometimes ugly and obnoxious and detestable. But it means at the bottom line, we still value their life. We still love them. We will still do whatever it takes to meet their need. I cannot think of anyone under any circumstances that I would not stop and render aid if it was anywhere within my ability. I can't think of any enemies I have. There's probably people out there that would describe me that way. But I can't think of any that I have. I can't think of anyone that would, circumstances permitting, prevent me from going to their aid 
no matter what they've done or how they've acted, because they are precious in the sight of God. Now, I'm going to tell you a story, not to pat myself on the back, but just to illustrate what I really believe is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in, in contrast to the ways of the world. I am... Um, as you know, I, I like to go through the parks every once in a while. Sometimes that's my early morning routine. Uh, I'll go through and get my sausage biscuit and my coffee. And then I'll head out to one of the parks and just drive through it and enjoy the, the morning sunshine coming up and the marsh and the birds and all that kind of thing. You know, it just kind of, it's just kind of rejuvenating for me. And so, and sometimes I get there before it opens. And there's an interesting fishing culture in McHenry. You know, people like to go to the dam and fish, and they'll line up at the gate to the to the park before it opens and wait for whomever comes through, the park's people, to come through and open the gates, and they'll, they'll go in and be the first to get their fishing spot, you know. And uh, so it's kind of interesting sometimes, as was this morning, one of those mornings, when I got there, just as the gates were opening, about 6 o'clock this morning, and there was a line of traffic, and uh, the front car went on in, and then some other cars. There was a, an SUV parked in line, engine running, lights on, windows up, no one visible. Everybody just stared around them, you know. And I just watched this happen, and I thought, well, that's strange. Car's running, the lights are on, nobody's home, <laughs> you know. And I looked around, there wasn't anywhere to walk. There was nowhere to, to be in that particular situation. And so um, I drove by and I looked. I couldn't see a soul. And so I turned around and came back and stopped. At this time, I blocked the road. So the next person that came up had to stop. If I needed help, the next person was going to tag your it. You're not getting by me until I get some assistance here. I thought to myself, you know, Lord, am I going to have to do CPR this morning? Has someone slumped over in the front seat, you know, the heart attack? What's going on here? So I go up to the window, and I knock on the window, and I look in, and I immediately realized CPR was not uh, in the cards for the morning because there were four people in the car, and chances of them all having a heart attack was just like nil. So uh, there's four people, and they're asleep. But the next thing I realized was they were not savory characters. They all had very long, stringy hair. They were all guys. And uh, they had all kinds of facial piercings and one thing and another. And then my thought was, I don't mean to stereotype here, but my thought was, what if I startle them and they shoot me? <laughs> that's, you know, that's, the, that's the next concern I have in this situation. But I knocked on the window anyway to make sure that they were okay, and they kind of woke up groggily, and it's like, you know, what's going on? And I said, you know, roll your window down. Are you okay? And yes, they were. And they had fallen asleep waiting for the gate to open. And everyone else had ignored them. And I thought, why is it that people can get mugged in the street and no one goes to their aid? Why is it that people can pass out and fall down in the street and no one checks on them? Why is it that a car can be sitting at the entrance to a park with the lights on and the engine running and no one visible and no one investigates? Do we not care about one another? 
you say, is that dangerous? Yes, it's dangerous. And I'm not suggesting that you pick up every hitchhiker you see if they're walking down the road in apparent good health. But friends, the valuation of other people that is born of the Holy Spirit does not take into account personal risk, the interruption of personal agenda, the interruption of what do I have to do next. I will tell you honestly, my thought was, if this person is slumped over and I have to start CPR, I don't even carry a mask anymore. I just keep one in my back pocket all the time, but... And then the ambulance is going to have to be called, and this is going to turn into an ordeal. But you know what? That's not important relative to my agenda. That was the whole point of Jesus' discussion of the Good Samaritan. They had to serve in temple. They couldn't stop and help this guy. And Jesus said the one who loves his neighbor is the one that stops. Friends, has the Holy Spirit of God born in your heart a love for other people that sees past the circumstances, past the risk, past the race, past the language, past the culture, past the ugliness, past whatever it is, and says, I value this person because they're made in the image of God and I cherish them. And if it was my worst enemy, if I had a worst enemy, I would still care for their life. Because the most important thing is not whether or not they like me or smell nice. The most important thing is whether or not they know Jesus Christ. And Paul says that's a character that the Holy Spirit builds inside those whom He fills. There is rising up within us a love for people. What, what do you think when you read... Uh, see the headlines, this person died, or this person's getting married, or whatever. And you know, I don't know how you read headlines, but I see them on Yahoo when I'm you know, logging in or something. And my thought is always, did they know Jesus? Is Christ going to be a part of that marriage? Does this person know the Lord? That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Where are they with God? You know, when I pray for government leaders, my concern is that they really know Jesus Christ. The politics is secondary. Their relationship with God is primary. And that just doesn't go for our politicians. We as believers transcend the, the concerns and cares of this world in that sense in our general valuation of human life. Is there prejudice in your heart this morning? Do you have people you just can't stand? Do you have people you don't like and, and, and disgust you and you just kind of wish they were out of the way? Has the Holy Spirit built in you a cherishing love for human beings. And I've been in a lot of circumstances in life with a lot of people that are unloving and unlovable. But it doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with how they act. It has to do with what God has done in my heart. Has He filled you with His love?
Paul says love is the first evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit, but there is also joy and peace. What is the spiritual fruit of joy? First of all, it's rooted in the security of a relationship with God and the certainty that regardless of the circumstances, we have a future that is delightful. I have to be careful because the message is being recorded, so pardon my... uh, Uh, kind of uh, obscurity here in telling this story, but we received a letter from a friend this past week who is serving the Lord in a controlled access country. That means missionaries not allowed. And uh, this friend uh, was uh, having a dinner with another friend of his that he had developed in that country, in that culture. And this other friend was kind of talking about life. And in the process of describing life, was talking about, you know, he was going to marry his girlfriend, uh, he thought, but at least he hoped, but they would probably end up divorced, because most people do, and he would have a couple of kids, but he probably would end up not seeing them because of the breakup of the family, because that's the way things go, and, and uh, you know, he, he would have this thing happen in his life and the other. And, and our friend who was there representing Jesus Christ wrote to us and said, This man was describing to me reality as it is in this country. This is normal life. It's dismal, gray, dull, despairing, and it ends badly. And then he said, but I live in a dream world. I see the same reality, but I have an unspeakable joy. He said, I am deluded with the illusion to something to that effect that one day I will see my God and I will live eternally in his presence and everything is going to turn out well. What is the what is the accurate picture? The accurate picture is the dream world. The reality is that those people in the Old Testament who sought for a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, were not looking for blessing in this planet. They were confident of the future that they had in Jesus Christ, ultimately. The kind of joy that Paul is talking about, and by the way, he was an expert on the subject. He and Silas were arrested in Philippi, for stirring up the people, they were beaten and chained in a dungeon in a prison. And at midnight, they were caught singing. I mean, get the picture. You've just had your back flayed open with this Roman whip. You are now chained in a damp, stinking dungeon. They didn't let people loose to go to the bathroom in those jails. They're chained to the wall in this dungeon after having their backs beaten to a bloody pulp, and they're singing. Where does that come from? How does that happen? Because they have a relationship with a God that Paul said makes me describe these events of life as momentary, temporary afflictions 
that are not to be compared to the weight of glory that I am going to enjoy. You say, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. Man, you don't see reality. Yes, he does. He sees real reality. He knows the true picture. He understands that the, the suffering of the moment, the pain of the moment, the trial of the moment, the crisis of the moment, whatever's going on in my life, it's only going to last so long. I, I remember going to a seminar many years ago, and, uh, you know, the guy's up there speaking, and he says, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? And, and he leads you down this trail, and finally you come to the end, and you say, well, the worst thing that could happen is that I could die. And then he says, if you, if you know Jesus Christ, what's so bad about that? You're immediately in His presence. And, and, and all this stuff is done. And you are going to live forever. There is a joy that springs up in the life of those who know Jesus Christ and are filled with the Spirit that defies the trials of the present circumstances. I also want to be be careful to explain to us that this joy that he is talking about here is not exactly the same as happiness or pleasure. Because you can have this joy when you're in pain. Pleasure is a quality of the body that says, this feels good. I like this. I'm having a hot fudge Sunday, man. This is great. Okay. You may not, you may be in intensive care on IVs with a, with a ventilator. But you can still have joy even when you're having no pleasure. You can also have joy when you're hurting emotionally. You can be in sorrow. You can be grieving. You can be struggling. You can be in, in sadness. If you're a parent and and you have a child that has strayed from the faith and is walking off in their own direction, and you watch their life go from one sad crisis to another, and you see the damage that they're causing and your heart is bleeding for them, that is not happy. But you can still have joy. The kind of joy that Paul is talking about is joy that transcends sorrow It is a joy that transcends pleasure. It is something that wells up within. Jesus said, I will give you my joy. Not the kind the world offers. I will give you my joy. And it will sustain you in life's darkest moments. Because you know, you know the real score. And then he says, The fruit of the Spirit is peace. Now, for the Greeks and for present-day New Agers and Eastern meditators, peace is tranquility. It is the absence of stress. It is a brain that is actually shut off. In fact, if you study some Eastern meditation, the goal is to get into a realm where your brain is even inactive. You're just kind of there, you know. You're centered. You're you're in touch now with the life cosmos. 
By the way, that never really happens. We're in spiritual warfare, and when you go there in meditation, you have not reached the absence of input. You're just getting input from a source you really don't even want to know. I hope none of you try that kind of stuff. But anyway, the goal of the Greeks and the goal of many New Agers is to have this kind of peace that, you know, you just, you just sit there so in such repose and everything's just so wonderful. The Hebrews, the Jews, and the New Testament didn't understand peace in those terms. In fact, it didn't understand peace in terms of the absence of stress or turmoil at all. When, when one Jew said to another, Shalom, what they were saying is, may you have a wholeness in your life, a well-being in your life, and healthy relationships in spite of what's going on around you. And the peace that the New Testament knows, Paul, for example, said to the Philippian church, be anxious for nothing. Now, anxiety implies that you're in the midst of a pressure cooker. Something's wrong. Something's amiss. You're worried. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the Peace of God, which goes beyond comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, there is a kind of peace that defies logic. You look at it and say, you ought to be on the edge, man. You have every reason to be totally fried. But yet you have a sense of tranquility about you. What is going on? And the reality is, first of all, that I have healthy relationships. First of all, I am at peace with God. And to be at peace with God is to have the peace of God and to know that no matter what happens, God and I are okay. You know, that's a tremendous thing to be able to go to bed at night and lay your head on the pillow and know that you and God are together and at peace. There's nothing between you. There's nothing that is worrying you in your relationship with God. And insofar as possible, Paul says, be at peace with all men. Now, that's not always possible. I'm glad he added that insofar as possible because you can't make everybody be at peace with you. But in, in terms of your heart, are you at peace? Are you okay? The fruit of the Spirit brings a kind of inner wellness, inner wholeness, inner tranquility that says, no matter what's happening around me, I'm okay. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. As I've talked about them this morning, do you recognize them? Do you see them in your life? Now, if they're missing, your tendency is going to say, okay, i got to try harder. <laughs> and I just want you to know this morning that won't work. What you can produce is in the other verses. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you find that you're missing these three, we're only a third of the way through the list. But if you find that you're missing these three, 
the key is to go back to God. You don't need more joy. You need more Jesus. You don't need more peace. You need more Jesus. If you're finding your love is lacking, you need more of Him in your life. Now, if you're a child of God, you can't get more of Jesus logically, but you can allow Him to have more of you. And the place to find the restoration of this fruit is to come back and say, Lord Jesus, fill me. I come back under your control. I want to be under your influence. I want to be intoxicated with you. I want to be full of Jesus. And He will produce in you these qualities. They're not always logical as far as horizontal perspective goes. But friends, we do not look at things which are in front of us to tell us what is real and true. We look at Him who transcends all things and who is true. And He provides the interpretation for what we see. And He is the one who is a sure foundation and the anchor of our soul. And in Him, we have love and joy and peace. Father, I pray this morning that you would examine our hearts and that you would allow us to be honest with ourselves and seek you. Is there in our lives the evidence of your Holy Spirit? Is the fruit there? And Lord, if it's not, give us the grace and humility this morning to come before you and say, I need to be filled with your Spirit, O God. I'm living out of my own strength and resources, and they're just simply inadequate. And I need to let go and come back and be filled with your Spirit. Lord, work that in our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.